Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello, I'm Philip Coggan, the Bartleby columnist. And you're listening to Money Talks on Economist Radio. On today's show, will Alibaba's plans to list in Hong Kong start a corporate shift away from Wall Street? There's the concern that eventually the American government might turn against the Chinese companies that are listed in the American market. A listing in Hong Kong gives it some insurance. And clearinghouses are supposed to make risky derivatives trading safer. But are they doing their job? These are for-profit entities that have an incentive to get as much transaction volumes as possible. And one way for them to do that is keep standards looser. But first, it's easy to paint a bleak picture of the current jobs market. Workers are supposedly underpaid, have lost control over their lives and will soon be replaced by robots. There's just one problem with this characterization: It's not true. Callum Williams is our Britain economics correspondent. He's been looking into how work in wealthy countries is not only plentiful, but for many people, is actually getting better. The rich world is enjoying an unprecedented employment bonanza. In the past five years, the OECD has added 43 million jobs. The unemployment rate in the bloc of 36 mostly wealthy countries is just 5.2%, which is the lowest rate since the 1970s. And in two-thirds of OECD countries, the employment rate of working-age people is currently at an all-time high. If we're looking for answers to why jobs across the rich world are booming, Japan is a great place to start. The country has had an average unemployment rate over the past half century of just 3%. Some of these jobs can seem a bit pointless, though. I went to Ginza in central Tokyo to see some of these jobs myself. So we're standing here in front of an electric bicycle park where you walk up to a machine, you put your bike in a kind of container in it and it goes down to an underground cellar and then you press a button and it comes back up again when you you want it back. So in front of this, we have a guy who's standing in full suit. He looks very smart. He's wearing white gloves. And his role basically is just to welcome people when they go and push the button. So when someone actually turns up to get their bike, he bows and that's all he does. That's his job. And he's been there for a few days now. I've seen him uh, every time I've walked past. About 10 feet down the road, there's a guy who's standing there holding a sign to show drivers where to park their car. And that's his job. Now, it's kind of easy to poke uh, fun at these jobs. They seem apparently to be sort of zero productivity jobs or even potentially negative productivity jobs because they just basically get in the way. They're all over Japan and they are probably one big reason why Japan's unemployment rate is so low. But it's not just so-called bullshit jobs, a phrase coined by anthropologist David Graeber, like these that can explain ultra-low unemployment in Japan. Policy plays a big role as well. The government has worked hard to try and improve the labour force participation rate of both men and women. One part of Prime Minister Shinzo Abe's sweeping economic reform package in Japan involves providing more daycare centres for children. 
The primary function of this policy was to increase the country's low birth rate, but it's also made it easier for some women to go to work. I feel quite confident to say that childcare does have a positive effect on female employment. This is Francine Blau. I'm a professor of economics at Cornell University. Professor Blau co-authored a paper with Lawrence Kahn in 2013, which suggests that policies such as these can have a massive impact on the likelihood of women going out to work. Differences across countries in female labor force participation go back a long time. We know some of the reasons for them, but not all of them. But one of the really interesting things in recent years is the role of policy. One important policy has to do with parental leave. One way to characterize parental leave policies is in terms of their duration, how long people can be out. But another interesting factor is what compensation they may receive. And we often call that the replacement rate. What proportion of the income that you would earn if you were working can you receive during your parental leave? These leaves are disproportionately taken by women, even when they're available to both men and women. Another important policy that relates to part-time work, and in particular, there are policies that can facilitate part-time employment. One policy is actually some countries have a right to request part-time employment that must be honored by the employer. So that's a, a, a small number of countries. And the thing we've discovered is people essentially want a decent job, which is a well-paid, secure job that has a, at least 30 hours a week and that will sustain our living standards. My name is David Blanchflower. I'm professor of economics at Dartmouth in the United States, and I used to be a member of the Monetary Policy Committee at the Bank of England. David Blanchflower has a new book out in June called Not Working, Where Have All the Good Jobs Gone? And that book argues that unemployment numbers aren't exactly proof that all is well with the labour market. Too many people have jobs that are low paid, have less hours than they would like. Sometimes in the UK, we've seen people on zero hours contracts where they don't even know one week to the next how many hours they've got. And if we were at full employment, the workers' bargaining power would be very different. They'd be able to bargain away such things and actually get themselves better jobs and the balance of power would go more to workers and wages would rise. So, so I mean by good jobs, jobs that actually can sustain living standards and are secure and make people feel um, comfortable. And that's not what they feel now. You mentioned a few times that, yes, while across the rich world we have lots of jobs that are created, these are all jobs that are insecure and uh, short-term and that kind of thing. I mean, the, the evidence for that is actually pretty weak. For if you look at average job duration and stuff over the past 20 years, it hasn't really changed. Well, let, yeah, let, let me go with that. I'm quite taken by the fear of unemployment. Since 2016, as the unemployment rate went from six to four, if you ask people, what do you think is going to happen to unemployment? Do you know what that series has done? That series has risen steadily since 2016. It's risen, and basically there's a rising expectation that unemployment is going to rise over the next 12 months, right? And the fear is, I mean, I've seen this a lot, the fear is that Polish plumbers will come in and take the jobs, Right. It's, uh, so it's the fear of migration. It's the fear that people will take the job. It's the fear that firms will move. Firms will take their production elsewhere. And when you talk to trade unionists, as I've done, they say workers are scared senseless, that they have no bargaining power. So I think it's a great deal about concern 
well, that, and then the second thing, when you ask people, what do you think the chances are that in the next six months you're going to lose your job? It's about 10 times higher than the actual probability. So that's the fear. There's, it's so, you know, it's like if you're mobile, you don't have to move to prove to your boss that you can take a job somewhere else, right? So I think that's a great deal of the explanation. Perhaps one reason why the popular discourse about modern labour markets is so gloomy is that academia and journalism are clearly two sectors in which finding stable and well-paid employment has become more difficult. And of course, academics and journalists spend a lot of time complaining about work on Twitter. Yet many popular perceptions about the modern labour market are wrong. Official estimates of the size of the gig economy, where people find work via apps, in America at least, put it at about 1% of total employment. In the past few years, low-skilled jobs have risen slightly as a share of total employment in the rich world. But high-skilled jobs have increased by far more. The jobs boom won't last forever. Eventually, a recession is likely to kill it off. But in the meantime, there might still be room for the OECD's labour market to get hotter. After all, in the 1960s, unemployment in both Japan and West Germany fell to 1%. That means that the rich world's job market could have more surprises in store. Thanks, Callum. And the great jobs boom is our cover story this week. To read more, why not try out a subscription? Just go to economist.com slash radio offer to get 12 issues for $12 or £12. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Next, Alibaba, the Chinese e-commerce company, is planning to list in Hong Kong. Four years ago, the group went public in New York in a record-setting $25 billion initial public offering. At the time, this was a sign of the symbiosis between America and China. But since then, of course, China's been trying to decrease its financial dependence on America. And in the last year or so, economic relations between the two have been damaged by the trade war. Simon Rabinovich is our Asia economics editor. Hello, Phil. Simon, why is Alibaba planning to list in Hong Kong? The stated reason is that they want to uh, diversify their capital sources and, and to add to their liquidity, which makes sense for a company as big as Alibaba that's spending as money as quickly as it is. Unstated uh, is the trade war. Uh, Alibaba is, of course, listed in New York. There's the concern that American investors are going to value Chinese companies less highly than they're really worth. And so having a listing in Hong Kong can help to buff up uh, Alibaba's listing. But more than that, there's also the concern that eventually the American government might turn against the Chinese companies that are listed in the American market. Uh, and so having a listing in Hong Kong gives, up, gives it some insurance uh, against that possibility. Do you think other companies will follow Alibaba's example and add a listing in Hong Kong because of the trade war? 
It's certainly a possibility. I mean, actually, just a few days earlier, a large Chinese uh, semiconductor maker, SMIC, a state-owned company, uh, announced that they were delisting from uh, from the New York market, uh, and uh, it's expected they'll they'll be listing uh, in, either in the Chinese market or in Hong Kong. So it could be the beginning of a trend. But there's, you know, more than a hundred Chinese companies listed uh, in the U.S. market, uh, and uh, you know they've they've chosen to go there because it's a very desirable market to be listed in. Because because of the uh, the depth of the liquidity, because of the sophisticated investor market, because of the relatively light regulations, some of them might begin to think because of the trade war, it's necessary to get closer to home. But it's not it's not a great option for them, to be frank. And who do you think is driving this? Is it Jack Ma, the founder, or is it the Chinese government behind it? Well, the Chinese government for a long time has wanted Chinese champions, tech champions, to be listed closer to home. So they've. Um, they're making an effort to introduce a, a new board in Shanghai specifically aimed at these kinds of companies. And then the Hong Kong market itself uh, has changed some of its rules to make itself more appealing for tech companies. Uh, last year, it introduced uh, weighted voting rights, allowing owners to, to have more voting rights than other shareholders. So so the government has wanted this for a while, but, but big sophisticated companies, including especially Alibaba, have resisted it simply because the New York market for their purposes is a very good place to be. Um, the fact that they're doing this now is, you know, as I said, it's partly about insurance. There's also an element of politics to it that this will go down very well uh, in Chinese media. It'll look like uh, Jack Ma is, is, is voting for the home team as the trade war deepens. And he's a very savvy operator. Um, so, you know, there's a bit of push and pull. And, and I think both for the Chinese government, it's a good outcome. And for, for Alibaba, it probably does make sense as well. And if you're an American investor who owns shares in Alibaba in the New York market, do you need to worry about this? Well, it depends on how you look at it. Now, if if you're an investor who owns shares in the New York market and you want to trade them actively during the day, then obviously this this might be a bit of a concern if it ultimately leads to a delisting from New York. A delisting, though, is is not something that appears to be in the offing. It's not being talked about yet. So I guess there's not an immediate risk of that. And, and moreover, you might actually have some upside in that, you know, the expectation is that investors closer to China, Asian investors understand the Chinese market better. They understand Alibaba's business operations better, or they at least they place more faith in it. And so possibly the shares in Hong Kong will be valued more highly than the shares in New York. And, uh, you know, that opens up an arbitrage opportunity. So it's conceivable that this might actually be good for the value of New York listed uh, Alibaba shares. Uh, but I guess the bigger concern that American investors might have is, is this the beginning of the end of Chinese listings in the U.S.? And certainly for some investors, that's a class of company that they they like to have in their home market. It, it's a you know good growth opportunities. It's a way to get diversification. Uh, and if you if you have fewer Chinese companies in the U.S., then that that's not a net positive for U.S. markets. Quite the opposite. And do you think it will help Alibaba raise more money? It does. I mean, they're they're talking about potentially twenty billion dollars. Um, now, it's a company with a market cap of four hundred billion dollars, but twenty billion is is still an awful lot of money. It's about as much free cash flow as as Alibaba generates in one year. So, it, you know, it, it will definitely add to their armory as they look to uh, you know expand around the world and as they have to fight more aggressively 
for customers in a, in a wide variety of different uh, market sectors uh, in China, you know, including e-commerce, which is their traditional homestay, uh, but also, you know, cloud computing as well. So they, they have a lot of things to spend money on, and this helps them. Simon, thank you very much. Thank you, Phil. And finally, during the financial crisis, secrecy over which companies were exposed to dodgy derivatives caused widespread fear. Banks were unsure about who was safe to lend to, and many stopped lending altogether. So when G20 leaders met in Pittsburgh a decade ago to try to avert the next crisis, one of their priorities was to make derivatives trading more transparent. Their solution was a greater reliance on clearinghouses. Alice Fullwood is our Wall Street correspondent and joins me on the line now. Hello, Alice. Hello, Phil. Explain, if you would, for our listeners, what do clearinghouses actually do? So... Prior to the financial crisis, when derivatives were traded and cleared differently, the sort of risks were dispersed across lots of different players. Um, What clearinghouses do is they sort of centralise that and put all of the risks in one place. And that's a better system when it comes to sort of managing counterparty risks. So whether sort of institutions are credit worthy, because you have a lot more transparency over who has which positions and sort of how large those positions are. But it does mean that sort of the system is only as strong as its sort of only link, which is that if you fear that the clearinghouse might not be as resilient as as you hope, then uh, that could sort of lead it to concentrate risk more aggressively. So how do the clearinghouses protect themselves? So the way they're set up is that when two counterparties want to clear a trade through this sort of central clearinghouse, they will initially post some margin and that will sort of protect the clearinghouse against either counterparty failing to pay on sort of these complex derivatives contracts. And if the bet starts to go against one party more significantly, they can also demand sort of extra variation margin. um, And that should cover any ongoing losses or risks that might be occurring. But in the event that sort of a a member does default, and those two sources of, of funding aren't sufficient to sort of cover any losses that the clearinghouse would have to take, you do also have this pooled default fund. Uh, So everyone who's a member of the clearinghouse will put money into this aggregated default fund. And if any one member defaults in significant enough size that um, the margin doesn't cover their position, that default fund will take a hit and members will be called upon to sort of replenish that safety buffer. Okay, so that default fund is there as a last resort. Has it ever been used? Yes. So there was an incident with a Norwegian trader in September last year, and he had taken sort of very large bets in Norwegian power markets. Uh, and when those moved against him, there was a sort of an additional margin call, but that wasn't enough to sort of cover his his losses. And the resulting loss, which was $120 million worth, ended up eating through sort of two thirds of that default fund. Now, it was quite a small clearinghouse. Um, it was a sort of reasonably small total loss, but it has sort of shaken those who regulate and look at clearinghouses who are growing more concerned that you could see a sort of similar incident at a bigger clearinghouse. So what does the Norwegian incident reveal about the limitations of this system? Something that clearinghouses really need to take into account is the size of the market that these members have positions in and how big a player they are in those markets. So the reason the Norwegian traders' bets went so spectacularly wrong is because he was such an enormous player in a very, very small and a liquid market. And that meant that they couldn't call variation margin quickly enough to cover the losses that he was, he was enduring. But there's a paradox at the heart of this, isn't there? Because the bigger the clearinghouse, the bigger the default fund you can create. And therefore, in theory, it sounds safer. But of course, then that would put all the risk in one place. But then when you have lots of different clearinghouses, they compete against each other by being 
less stringent in demanding margin and all the trade might easily go to the one with the weakest rules. Precisely, that is that is an issue at the heart of how clearing houses work. You have a, a relatively small number of very large clearing houses that dominate markets for, for specific products. And that is sort of not the initial goal of regulators when they wanted to move derivatives trading to sort of this this clearing model. You know, these are for-profit entities that have an incentive to get as much transaction volumes as possible. And one way for them to do that is, as you suggest, to sort of keep standards looser and tempt people into using their clearing house because it's sort of slightly cheaper because you have to post less collateral. Posting collateral can be quite expensive. And at the same time, regulators are sort of forcing traders to use these these clearing houses more and more. There are going to be sort of punitive new regulations coming in towards the end of this year and next year that will sort of force funds that don't go through clearing houses to post sort of punitive levels of, of collateral if they want to sort of trade just with their bank. Uh, so at the same time as people are being sort of forced to use these things more, uh, regulators sort of taking another look at some of the new risks that, that using them might pose to the financial system. So do you think regulators will get tougher and tougher as years go on? It certainly seems as though they are leaning that way now. There are sort of a lot of suggestions from people like Paul Tucker, who's for, former um, Bank of England Monetary Policy Committee member, and, um, and Randall Qualls, sort of suggesting ways that you could increase the resilience of these institutions, um, in particular because they've sort of been designated too big to fail by regulators rather than sort of becoming that way through oversight. And the other solutions that people have been discussing are potentially changing the sort of ownership or structure of these institutions. Um, That's not something that is being sort of publicly debated now, but it is something that Mr. Tucker alluded to in some of his remarks about how you can try and safeguard these institutions against being the next institutions that would need to be bailed out if there were another financial crisis. So someday between... Here in 2050, you'll be waking up to hear the news of the financial disaster when a clearinghouse gets in trouble. But not, we hope, tomorrow. Alice, thank you very much. Thank you so much, Phil. And that's all for this week's Money Talks. Thanks very much for listening. While you're with us, please take a moment to rate us on Apple Podcasts. It really does make a difference. I'm Philip Coggan, and in London, this is The Economist. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.